The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, we're going to resume the Gospel of Luke this weekend. I'm going to try that all again. It was a little disappointing, I have to tell you. Hey, we're going to get back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. <laughs> now, for those of you who are newer to Harvest and don't understand what's going on right now, we started the Gospel of Luke in November of 2013. So what year is it now? 2017. And uh, our hope is now we're, we're, we're picking up steam. And uh, we're going to um, get started on it here, work through Luke all the way into the summer, and uh, then our hope, pick it up again, get 22 messages done between now and the summer, and then pick it up again uh, in the fall and uh, finish this, uh, the Lord willing, by Easter 2018 with the last part of Luke. That sound good? Just, just write that down. It's um, not quite a promise. It's a hope. So um, we're excited about this. And so we're at message 52, which means we're past the halfway point, 90 or so messages that we're going to do in Luke's gospel. And uh, we're hoping to be again uh, by summer at the end of chapter 18. Now, Luke, just a little bit of background before we get back into this. Luke, of course, was not one of the original 12 disciples. He really, in some respects, is like a second generation Christian. Uh, once Jesus came and, and brought the message of the kingdom, uh, he's unique in the sense that he was no, uh, non-Jewish, uh, he uh, was a Greek, and he was um, uh, um, a companion, a friend, a traveling partner in ministry with the Apostle Paul. And uh, this gospel uh, really is, is thought to be uh, significantly influenced by uh, Paul's ministry and Paul's theology. His uh, gospel, Luke's gospel, is an articulate and detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was, uh, by profession, a physician. And so the detail is there in the gospel. And the emphasis of the gospel really is around Jesus as the Son of Man. And again, it has a very Greek rather than Jewish flavor to it. And that's important because I think that um, uh, probably there's a majority of Gentiles here in the room. And so this is a gospel written particularly uh, for us. And so we're going to pick it up today in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 34 is the passage that we have in front of us. And just the only introduction I really need to do to the, to the uh, message today is this, that this is the uh, perfect message uh, for the uh, post-Christmas, waiting for the visa bill to come in. It's the start of the year, so we're evaluating our finances message. That's, that's what we're looking at today. Jesus wants us to get this from today's message. Don't be, don't be anxious about financial matters, but trust God to meet your needs. Sound good? And clear enough? Uh, don't be anxious about financial matters, but trust God to meet your needs. All right, so let's read a little bit of this. I'm going to read uh, 13 through 21 and, um, to get us started, and then we'll, work, we'll, we'll look at all the verses as we work through the passage. This is Luke chapter 12, 13. Well, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care 
and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his provisions or possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen? Word of God. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we are aware that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And Father, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's what we need the word to do right now, to discern our thoughts and our intentions. And Father, to have you through the power of your Holy Spirit with the proclamation of this word, to transform us and change us more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen? Amen. All right, don't be anxious about financial matters, but trust God to meet your needs. If I am anxious about financial matters, this is where we want to start right now. Um, First, I'll want what I don't have. If I'm anxious about financial matters in my life, I'm going to want What I don't have. Now, uh, verse 13 started with this uh, kind of someone in the crowd comes up to him with a question. And the question is about an inheritance matter between he and his brothers. And I I don't want to stir anything up here today. Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) But some of you here know the pain of this very question. Because some of you have already gone through some settling of an estate, some inheritance issue that's happened in your family. It's happened in our family. And it's happened multiple times in between my family and Cheryl's family where there are disputes after the grandparents pass, disputes among our parents about who gets what because the will isn't clear or even if it is clear, I thought I was getting this and how the shares are are divvied up, and, and listen, isn't it true there might be some people in this room right now that you have a severed relationship with a family member over an inheritance issue? And it's, it's, so, it's so sad that money could divide us in that way. But that's exactly what's going on here, and Jesus sees in this guy this, this conflict between he and his brother, but then Jesus, verse 14, bluntly refuses to answer his question. Why? Jesus, why didn't you just answer his question? Why didn't you help him settle the matter? Well, because Jesus came to do something far more important than settle civil disputes over inheritance issues with human beings. He came here to deliver the message of the good news of the gospel of Christ and nothing. I mean, Jesus' focus is unbelievable and I wish I had his focus. 
because he wasn't going to allow himself to get off track at all. He was staying on the central message and he wasn't going to get off into these petty disputes. And so he refuses to answer the question. We're thinking about this guy, but he comes. He's got this a deep want, this need in his life. He wanted what he didn't have. He's trying to settle this issue, maybe to cover debts, maybe just to have more, maybe to make his life more comfortable, but he wants his share of the inheritance. And he was anxious enough about it that he felt it was important to go to Jesus, who's obviously establishing himself as this impactful teacher in uh, Israel in the day, and he thinks it's important enough, his thing, to go to Jesus and ask him the question. He's so anxious about it. He wanted what he didn't have. And I think it would be helpful for us to see what that really looks like in our own lives. What, what does it look like when I want what I don't have? And he tells his followers, Jesus then turns from the man. So it's really the last thing that happens with him. It, Jesus just uses this request and his refusal to answer it. But what's going on in the guy's heart? Jesus uses that as a teachable moment for his followers. And he turns to them and he tells them that really what's, what's going on here is covetousness. That's what's at the root of the man's request a covetous, uh, covetousness is this. Here's a great definition. A covetousness is when your desire for something surpasses your desire for God and what he wants for you. You want something more than you want God. John Piper puts it this way in a, in a book that was so formative for me in my um, walk with Christ is... Um, John Piper's a hunger for God, and he talks about all these wonderful gifts that God gives us. Doesn't he give us such wonderful gifts? Doesn't he? But isn't it so easy, and this is where Piper was really going in the book, that it's so easy for us to focus on the gift rather than the giver. And we become so attached to the gifts that we forget who gave these things to us and to acknowledge him as such. And so covetousness is when your desire for something surpasses your desire for God and what he wants for you. So how can I know? I want to get at this. I don't want to be so gripped by the gifts that I forget the giver. So how about seven diagnostic questions that are going to help us determine if we're covetous? Does that sound good? You want to go through these? You're going, no, I do not. I do not want to go through these. Well, we're going to. Here we go. Uh, ready for this? Um, seven questions of self-diagnosed coveting. Do I spend idle time dreaming about what I don't have? Do you want some examples? No. <laughs> I've got some. Um, winning the lottery. I dream about winning the lot a lottery, right? The OLG likes to tell us, um, imagine, the, imagine the freedom, right? Imagine the freedom. So you imagine it, and you dream about it, and you think about it in idle times. If only, if only we could win the lottery. Or, or how about um, we dream about getting an inheritance? You know that when you're dreaming about your inheritance, what you're really dreaming for, just like the prodigal son, what he was really wishing for is that his parents would die. He wanted to, that's what he was saying. That's what, that was, you know, what was so hurtful to his dad wasn't turning over the money. It was that he was saying, I wish you were dead so I could have the money. 
There's all kinds of things that are messed up with that. You dream about owning a new car because yours is inadequate. You, you walk through the mall and look at the things you can't have. You, you, you surf through Amazon and online shopping and, and you think about all the things you could have but can't afford. You torment yourself really in this way. Or you watch Beachfront Bargain Hunt and you think about what it would be like to cash in and live in the Bahamas on the beach, right? But these TV shows and these advertisements, what are they designed for? To make us discontent with what we have. We dream about the way it could be. All right, that's just the first question. Got six more. Do I, we're diagnosing coveting, do I favor people who can possibly give me what I desire? Third, do I have a sense of entitlement, feeling that I deserve what I don't have? You know, maybe you're at a certain station in life, a certain age, and you just think, by now I should have that. Why don't I have that? You think you deserve it. Or fourth, do you ever disobey God's word in having this desire? In other words, it goes beyond just kind of thinking about it or hoping for it to actual lust. Or beyond that, I start neglecting, this is sin, I start neglecting my obligations, the things I ought to be doing, in order to focus on this dream, this desire, this want. Fifth, do I ever complain about what I do have? God's provided some nice things for you, but I complain. My car's not adequate. It doesn't have heated seats. It doesn't have a sunroof. It's, it's, um, it's, it's old. It, it has, requires more repair, repairs. It's, it's not fresh and new like everyone else's. There's a little bit of rust on it, and I complain about the car that I have. <laughs> There's so many people who don't even have a car. So, you know. Or I complain about my house. Or I complain about my job. You get the idea. Number six, I, I use phrases like this, trying to diagnose covetousness. I use phrases like this, if only I had, or what I wouldn't give for. If you use those phrases, maybe, maybe there's a coveting problem. Or this one, and this is the hardest of the seven, I think. I struggle to be happy for others when they get what I want. Zing, right? So it's no surprise that when you think about all of that, anxiety rightly results when I don't have what I want. I'm going to be anxious. That just makes sense, of course. So let's keep going. If I'm anxious about financial matters, I'll want what I don't have and, and then this and do what I need to do to get it. Do what I need to do to get it. And so Jesus then in verse 16, he moves into this parable to really illustrate the most common perspective about wealth, which is when I have it, I always want more of it. I always want more of it. And so there's, there's an inherent disconnect and discontent with us. And so here's the man in the parable. He's a man who already has a lot. He's got these barns. He's been very successful. The barns are absolutely full with his, uh, with his produce, with his goods. And he's, he's got more being produced. So this is a very successful person. But he's looking for a way to have even more. And the only thought that he has 
is more for me. He takes no time to consider that when God is prospering you in an extraordinary way, that there might be other options aside from more for me. He doesn't even think about it. And I think about all the things that we might do to get more. Would you lie to get more? Would you, would you cheat to get more? Would you steal to get more? What about, okay, those are, most of you are just going inside, no, I wouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. Of course not. I'm a follower of Christ. But, but would you overwork to get more? Would you, would you neglect your marriage? Would you neglect your kids? Would you justify Setting aside the really important things in your life just to work more hours, more overtime, more weekends. So you can make more money, double time, triple time. Would you, would you take a second job? Would you find another way to produce but to take away from, from other things that God has put in your life? In order to have more, would you, would you overwork would you, would you spend on get-rich-quick schemes? Uh, for example, lotteries. Would you, would you invest in bad investments? The, the, the too-good-to-be-true investments that are indeed too good to be true. Would you fudge on your taxes? Fudge is what we call it when we don't want to call it cheating or stealing. I mean, it's January. We're going to be working on our T1 soon. Is there income you don't claim? That's illegal. Do you have any income you don't claim? Do, do, you, do, do you take deductions that aren't legit? I mean, Jesus made it super clear. Just pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. There's blessing in that. I know we pay a lot of taxes, but that's the law. It's where you live. Move somewhere else if you don't like these taxes. And when you go there, pay your taxes there. Maybe, maybe the, the thing that, that you're, you're going to do, whatever you need to do to get it, is, is not being generous. Not obeying the Lord in your giving. Not, not blessing others. Maybe that's the thing for you. And you hold back that which you ought to be giving. Because you believe your motto is charity begins at home and you mean your home. Well, none of that is a great plan. But when that is your plan, what it really shows is your true values, what you truly value in life. And the rich man in the parable says it in Verse 19, you see it there. He has this little conversation with himself. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And he makes it super clear in this conversation with himself what his true value system really is. 
This is what he cherishes. He cherishes relaxation. He cherishes rest. He cherishes uh, really the philosophy of hedonism, which is pleasure for self. The Latin, the very common Latin motto, carpe diem, which can be very positively stated as seize the moment or seize the day, but in its extreme, it is the motto of hedonism, which is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In, in the very vernacular, it's party on, dude. That's carpe diem. Live it up now. This is a me-centered philosophy of life. And this rich man in the parable, he, he just wants to eat what he wants to eat and when he wants to eat it. He wants to eat at the finest restaurants. He wants to enjoy five-star vacations. He wants to live in upscale neighborhoods, wear designer clothings and, and clothing and drive luxury cars. For him, that's, that's the pinnacle. And he's showing us what he values. Now, you, you may say... Well, I'm good then, because I don't have a luxury car, I don't live in an exclusive neighborhood, I don't wear designer clothing, I don't eat at, five, uh, at the best restaurants, and I don't go on five-star vacations. You may just be able to say right now, deep breath, I'm off the hook this weekend. The Bible does not apply to me. <laughs> now, now may, maybe what I've stated, and uh, honestly to our guests who are here from Oakville, this was in my notes before I knew you were coming. We look at that and we just go, you know what, we're in Barrie, not Oakville. But, but here's the thing about the word of God, and it's, it's remember what I said in my prayer, it, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the thing about this principle is that it scales. It doesn't matter if you live in, in Barrie or Oakville. It doesn't matter if you're blue collar or white collar. None of that matters. It all scales. Whatever your starting point is, whatever, whatever wealth level You've achieved. If you want more and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get more, you're showing your value system, whatever your starting point is. So, so how many people are getting off the hook here this morning? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody's, nobody's getting off the hook. Whatever your starting point, if you think having more money or possessions are the answer, you are sadly mistaken and you are showing your true values and when that happens, I reveal my heart for this world. I, re I reveal my heart for this world. There, there's no place for that, though. He's, he's turned to address his disciples. The parable is for us. And there's no place for this in a Christ follower's life is what Jesus is saying and so the parable guy with all his wealth around him and his, his, his big barns that he has that he's going to tear down and build bigger. And when, when you think about barns, don't get lost in the agricultural illustration here. This is, his barns are his investment portfolio. His, his, barn, his barns are his savings account and, and his property and his investments and his bank accounts and his bonds and his stocks and all of his possessions. Filled with abundance, yet about to be rebuked by God himself for that. Verse 20, but God said to him, 
fool. You fool. You think you're so smart. You think you've worked so hard and, and you've been so ingenious and, and, and all of the application of good business practices and good agricultural practices, you think you've got it all going on. And that's why you're so wealthy. You think you're so smart, but you're actually a fool. This night, your soul is required of you. You're going to die tonight. And there's nothing in those barns that you're taking with you. You can't take it with you when you're gone. And you're about to go. And so the comfort he achieves in this life, the, the rest, the relaxation, the accumulation of all that he has, it's based on nothing. It adds up to zero on the ledger. And he isn't anxious, obviously, but he should have been because his riches ultimately didn't save him. And Jesus then makes his point to his disciples, verse 21, so is the one, this is like a proverb, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one. Again, any one of us no matter where we fall on the scale, are susceptible to this. He wants us rather to be rich toward God. So this is not just a rich man's problem. I like the note that was in the ESV study Bible about this verse, though this verse does not prohibit wealth, Jesus clearly warns his hearers concerning the dangerous, eternal implications of wealth with its seductive tendency toward complacency, self-sufficiency, and covetousness. That's well said, don't you think? It kind of captures it. Well, that's all the kind of the negative side of it, the don't do, How, ready, to, ready to flip this thing now and get a little more positive? Ready for that? All right, let's go. Uh, but if I trust God to meet my needs, I'll want what God wants for me. I'll want what God wants for me. Okay, now these verses that we haven't looked at yet, uh, verses 22 and 23 to start, he said to his disciples, clearly turning now to speak to those who are already following him. So if you're here today and you're not a believer and maybe this is your first time with us and you're like, I knew it. If I go to church, they're gonna talk about money. Okay, just understand, we started this series three years ago, and we're still working on it, and this is just the passage for today. Obviously important because it reveals the heart, but this is, I just want to tell you, if you're not a believer, you're off the hook here. This is a message for believers. Jesus is speaking to each of us. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Don't be anxious about your life. He mentions these basics. He mentions food and he mentions clothing. We could group into the clothing, the need for shelter. And he's saying life's about more than these things, these earthly things that the uh, men in the parable were worrying about, that the men who was questioning about the inheritance is more than about those things. 
And there's a basic principle here that we have to grasp if we're going to move on to deeper things, if we're going to overcome our anxiety about financial matters. And he illustrates here the why. Why is it that I can trust God, that I can look for him to provide for the basic needs of my life? That's what we pick up in verse 24, what God really says here as Jesus speaks to us. Consider the ravens. Think about birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? We are of infinite more value than any species in the animal kingdom. God provides for them. Of course he's going to provide for us. And which of you by being anxious, verse 25 which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? None of us can do that. Anxiety does not produce long life, just the opposite. If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies. Think about flowers now, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The point is that God is gonna provide. The Father is telling us that we'll have everything that we need if we trust him. It comes down to trust. It comes down to our faith in him. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, so obviously insignificant, yet God takes care of them, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Little faith. You have some, you're, you're following Jesus, you're trying to figure it out, it's growing, but it's still small. And I need you to have faith to believe this, to trust in him. He goes on, verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world, the unbelievers, pagans, seek after these things. And then what is one of the most comforting phrases in the word? Your father knows that you need them. He already knows every single one of your needs. You simply need to trust him. But do you believe him when he says that? I mean, think about it. Do you really believe him when he says that he's going to provide for every one of your needs? Or are you, or are you trying to take it all into your own hands and make it happen on your own? Now, for sure, this will mean, for some of us, moving the line and redefining what we believe is a need versus what are actually wants in our life. And so you might have to reevaluate the size of house that you need or the kind of car that you need, or how new the car is, or you might have to reevaluate the frequency of eating out, or of the vacations you take, or the kind of clothing that you wear. Cheryl and I had a, 
a wonderful weekend away last weekend uh, down in, in Toronto and on Saturday morning, we decided to just kind of go out and, and shop around a little bit, look at some things. We went to the St. Lawrence Market and had breakfast and made our way to the distillery district. And then we Ubered over to Dundas Square and we went down through the Eaton Center and we didn't really shop in any stores in the Eaton Center, just kind of walked through it and then decided we'd go into the bay because that's a place where we actually do shop and went into the, the bay. And of course, the bay downtown Toronto is, I don't know how many floors it is. Is it seven, eight, nine floors? I don't It's a lot of floors. Tim, how many floors is it? Nine floors. It's, it's nine floors. And, and um, so we go in through the catwalk from the Eaton Center. I think you're on the second or third floor at that point. And so I go to the very first rack I see. I'm, I'm a little grumpy at shopping at this point because I'm a little hot. And when I get that way, it's, it's not good. It's not good. Cheryl's just like, we might as well leave now. And, but I, but I, so I start looking. I, she says, you know, I'm going to go up to this floor and look at some women's stuff. So I'm first, it's a clearance rack. So I started looking at some clothes. Can you see that? This is the, did I mention it's the clearance rack? So the shirt, in case you can't see that, the regular price was $445, and the clearance price was $311.50. It was a really nice shirt. <laughs> I'm clearly not wearing it, so I didn't buy it. And so I looked at, you'd think that that was an anomaly, but on this clearance rack, I looked at six shirts, and they were all in the same price range. That's quite a bargain at 300 and something, right? <laughs> So I'm losing it at this point. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm texting, I'm getting, I'm texting Cheryl. That picture was taken because I texted it to her. I said, this is the clearance rack. What are we doing here? And then she's like, no, no, no. Go to menswear on the seventh floor. And I got up there and I found normal clothes. And at the, at the, at the right price, because I don't spend more than 30 bucks for a shirt. And, and that's a pretty extreme example, isn't it? <laughs> But the, the, point, the point being that we might need to move the line a little bit on what we think we need um, in terms of all of these regular things that are in our lives. We're talking about reprioritizing our spending, looking at our budget, and then, listen, cutting from our budget what doesn't fit the values of God's kingdom. And in the process of doing that, and this is super important, in the process of doing that, not comparing myself to any other human being, period. And, and this is where we struggle. It's, it's my budget, it's our budget, our family budget, compared to the values of God's kingdom. That's what influences it. Not what my neighbor has, not what someone in my small group has, not what my friend has, not what my brother or sister has. It's just me and my budget and the values of God's kingdom. So I'm not comparing myself to anyone else. The measure, we said this off the top, the measure is what God wants for me. And what God wants for someone else is irrelevant. What God wants for someone else is unhelpful. What God wants for someone else is not my concern. What does God want for me? So say this with me. I want what God wants for me. Thanks for saying that in the most boring, rote manner possible. <laughs> now perhaps we could say it like we mean it. I want what God wants for me. I want what God wants for me. Amen. Amen. All right. 
with a hoot at the end. All right, and then I will invest in what is eternal, and Jesus makes it clear in verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And to seek his kingdom is more than about just how I allocate my funds. It means prioritizing his word and his ways. It means walking with him passionately. It means being part of his church. It means loving one another. It means engaging in the mission that he's given us uh, in this world. It, it means sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and inviting people to come and see what God is doing. And it's anticipating and looking for his coming. It's, it's about living out and proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb in our lives by the transformation that the Holy Spirit is doing. That is in full what it means to live by the values of God's kingdom and investing in what is eternal. And the man in the parable had only considered the here and now. He wasn't thinking about any of that. Comfort in this life. But God stands ready here to pour out his goodness in our lives. Verse 32, fear not, he says, little flock. Fear not. Why does he say fear not at this point? Because it's so destabilizing to our lives to consider that we might have to live on less. That's the challenge. Because we're all looking for security and number one on the security list is I want to feel financially secure. And if I'm going to make these decisions, again, that's just destabilizing. And so Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to do, he wants to give you good things. And so, so then he he says to them, sell your possessions and give to the needy. This is, this is his, his remedy, his solution. And I think there's an obvious question when you read that verse, there's an obvious question. Does that mean that every one of us need to sell all our possessions and give it away to the poor? I know you really want me to answer that question. Because the challenge is we live in this climate we live in this place, and it's not possible really to sell all your possessions. And so what exactly is Jesus saying when he says this? I've got four little notes that I think are gonna help us understand this a little bit better. It is possible, and I don't know how comfortable you are with this, and I, I guess you could send me an email if you're upset by this this week, but probably not. Send it to um, rfreeman at harvestberry.ca. <laughs> He's the soul care guy. Um, it is possible here, first note on this, it is possible that Jesus is speaking with hyperbole. It is possible that in, in a sense he's stating something to an extreme to catch our attention because we so don't want to hear these things. And we're so in a position where we're locked into the value system of this world where money is so important to us and such a revealer of the heart, it's so important that Jesus is trying to get our attention. It's possible that he wants us to know the danger and devastation that money and possessions can exact in our lives, so he's trying to get our attention. So that's kind of the first note. It's possible that that's going on. Secondly, um, some we know in, in this matter of understanding should we sell all our possessions, some may have a particular calling by the Lord to sell all their possessions, to cash out, and to give their life to the service of the Lord. It's possible that some would be called even to poverty. And there are 
believers today who have cashed out, who are in mission stations around the world, or who are moving to the inner city and living in poverty in order to reach those that are in those communities and identify more fully with them. Some, some are called to that. And it could be that God would call you to sell all your possessions because you, like the rich young ruler, that's the heart issue that's blocking you from becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. In that case, uh, the rich young ruler came and he wanted to know how to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. He didn't say that to the woman at the well. He didn't say that to Nicodemus. He didn't say that to Zacchaeus. I mean, there were lots of people that he didn't say the same thing to, but he said it to this young man because that was his issue in particular. And so for him, it was to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Here's a third note. You notice in verse 33, when we'll look at it in a moment, that they still have money bags, which leads you to believe that they still had money to put in the money bags, that they still had a wallet or a purse, So there was still a capacity to give and be generous beyond this suggestion that they would sell their possessions. So they still had some. It was clearly not all that they had liquidated. And then finally this note, it's not so much a command to sell all, uh, but an example of how one invests in eternity. In other words, Jesus is saying when you sell your possessions, and give to the needy, you are putting a little something away in the heavenly mutual fund. And so leverage what you have to impact the lives of others and so glorify the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. And so, does Jesus require all of us to sell all our possessions? The short answer is maybe, but probably not. But for some, yes. But he he wants us all, but the principle is clear. He wants us all, when we are selling our possessions, when we are giving, when we are being generous, to see that as an investment in eternity. And many of you already understand this this idea because you have been convinced to set aside money for your retirement here. And if you're in your working years, and, and you're wise about this, you're setting some money aside, you're putting some money in RRSPs, and you're making sure that on the day you retire, that you have a steady income, that you can live at a reasonable uh, level of, of living, uh, standard of living. You understand that. And what Jesus really just wants us to see is, because we only ever look that far, he says, I actually want you to look a little farther than retirement. I want you to actually look beyond death. And I want you to be putting some stuff away into that fund, into eternity, and investing it there. And when you have saved and invested in this way, it naturally follows, doesn't it follow? You won't be anxious about financial matters because you'll have the priorities of God's kingdom right in front of us. The generous simply aren't anxious about money. And here's what I know. Over these last 15 years, Um, of watching this church, but especially in the last year or so, many of you are already learning these principles in a pretty significant way and living them out as best you can with the help of God's Holy Spirit. I love the way that you respond and your generosity. And you've made decisions about your lifestyle already, applying many of the things I've already talked about in this message. Many of you are sacrificing in significant ways to invest in what is eternal, and God is pleased with that. Evidently from his word, God is pleased with that. You're not simply building bigger barns, but you're redistributing what you have. 
to invest in the gospel, to invest in the planting of churches, to alleviate the suffering of those who are weak and vulnerable and on the margins, to, to address issues of injustice. And I love that you're doing all of that. And when we carry out the mission that Jesus entrusted to us in this world, we are investing for eternity. And when we do that, we're showing what we truly value. You see that next? Verse 33 continues, provide for yourselves, here's the reference to money bags, wallets, purses that do not grow old. Instead, verse 21, remember that? Be rich toward God. You may in fact, if you live in this radical way, you may in fact have less money, you may have fewer possessions, but your money bag, your purse, your wallet in eternity will be stuffed with cash. Your purse in heaven will be full to overflowing. Your investments will show returns that your investment advisor here only wishes they could deliver because you've invested it with the Lord. And all of this revealing my heart for God's kingdom. Verse 34 sums it up again in a proverb. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart is the core of who you are as a person. It's a single word to describe your mind, your wills, your emotion, your soul, and your spirit. And if we were to do a spiritual MRI of your heart, it would reveal if you are for the Father or for this world. But more practically, if you want to do that assessment, it, it really is as simple as this. Sometime this week, you take your budget out, you take out your bank statements and your credit card statements, and you look at where the money is going. And on each line item, you can just write beside it. Reflects the value of God's kingdom or reflects the values of this world. That's the assessment that we have to do. You have to do it personally because we're so private about this. This is the thing we never talk to each other about. We don't want anybody ever to know how much money we have or don't have. And so we keep this so private. Here's the thing. There's no password. There's no computer encryption that can keep the Lord out of your money. He already knows it all. He already knows every line item in your budget. He already knows how you spent everything. He knows everything about your bank statements more than you even know. He's already assessed it. And so really, this is just a, a thing between you and him to work out with him to see if you can't more fully reflect the values of this kingdom so that your heart will be for his kingdom. So don't be like the man asking for the inheritance. Don't be like the rich man in the parable who was a fool who were consumed and enamored with what they wanted and what they had but have a heart that is for God's kingdom. And some of you may need to get the books out this week and do some reevaluation. And I am so hoping, I was just thinking about this, I'm so hoping for some very spirited discussions in your small groups. And I think you're gonna have an exciting time there as you talk this through because a Christ follower, listen, a Christ follower should never be anxious about financial matters. But always trust God to meet his or her needs and always investing in that which is eternal. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. 
If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.